Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm going to let you in on a little tidbit about my personality, not that you asked. But I have a strong aversion to the word practical when it comes to sermons. There's a couple reasons for this. First, I feel like in the United States we're like hyper-pragmatists. If a sermon is not about improving our lives, then it's basically worthless. And I'm sure you're already aware of this, but that's not the case for millions and millions of our sisters and brothers around the world, right? Um, following Jesus isn't something that improves their lives. It's often something that makes their lives incredibly dangerous. They may be disowned by their families, may have to worship in secret, they may even be martyred. But for, a many, for many American Christians, we're looking for a sermon that will just encourage us to ask for that raise at work, or put a down payment down on a house, you know, all that prosperity stuff, right? So sometimes I, I, I fantasize about what it would be like when Pastor Joel Osteen meets uh, the Apostle Paul in the new creation, right? Like, I want to have ringside seats to that conversation and like a, and like a you know, popcorn or something. <laughs> I'm not only averse to like practical sermons because of the self-help nature of them, um, but I'm also kind of averse to them because uh, they can be an excuse for like theological platitudes. For example, I had a boss once who was a pastor, and he thought that he preached uh, practical sermons. That's what he said. And what he actually did was he kind of said the same thing every week in a different way, but it always basically amounts to like, um, God loves you more than you can imagine, but you're more broken than you can imagine either. So it's like, grace, 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 and you're a horrible sinner. And he thought that was really practical. But I remember the Sunday when, after church, a woman who had been a part of that church for a really long time, and who actually graduated from seminary, she said, yeah, yeah, pastor, I know, I know, grace, 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 but like, I want to grow in my faith. How do I do that? <laughs> so maybe it wasn't as practical as he thought. Personally, the kind of sermons that like, I like are the ones that aren't like seven steps to you know, improve my life, but they're usually ways that Sermons that help me think in a different way. Sermons that challenge me to see the world differently. Those are the ones that like haunt me later. If I'm going through like a tough time, the words of those messages return to me. I'm a fan of a sermon that kind of like washes over me like a new kind of music that I've never heard before. That, that kind of sounds a little bit experimental. But then later, I grow to like love that music and it becomes like the soundtrack of my life. Like, that's the kind of sermon I like. Which is why, given my strong aversion to all these different types of practical sermons, that's why this is going to be a very odd sermon for me. Because in this sermon, I am, my goal is to be highly practical. That's why I was really, like, intent on giving each one of you one of the bulletins. Because you may have to take notes on this one. This is going to be probably my most practical sermon ever. My hope is that we will be able to leave this morning and almost immediately apply what we have learned. I'm entitling this message, How to Say I'm Sorry. And as you'll remember, last week we started a new series on relationship dynamics called DTR. And if you're in relationships with human beings, eventually you're going to have to say you're sorry. One of the constants of of encountering, uh, or being in relationships, is encountering misunderstanding, conflict, even hurt. 
we're susceptible to sin as human beings, and ultimately we often end up hurting those that we are in closest relationship with. So, in order to heal and mend those relationships, we need to know how to give a proper, good apology. So, uh, that's what we're going to focus on this morning, starting with a text in Genesis chapter 33. But before we turn to that text, would you join me in a quick word of prayer for the illumination of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, we need you in our relationships. We know that we are broken vessels. We are people who are susceptible to sin, and oftentimes we end up hurting even the people that we love the most. So Lord, I, I pray that in this message this morning, you would inspire us uh, to be peacemakers, to be those who mend the wounds, those who, who are first to initiate uh, apologies, first to run to reconcile. I pray that you would form us in the image of your son, that we would be like Jesus and put the needs and the interests of others before our own. And I pray that this would be a very practical message that we can uh, apply in our lives. And that we would, be, we would be known for being really good apologizers. Help us to be those who, who, uh, who say I'm sorry when we need to. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Alright, so Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. You can follow along in your own translation of the Bible. I'm going to use the NIV on the screen behind me. Starting in verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What is the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has graciously, has been gracious to me, and I have all that I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. Now, this is a bit like starting at the end of the movie, because there's a whole long backstory that goes with the, uh, the brotherhood of Esau and Jacob. But if I, was give you the, if I was to read to you the whole story, this would be like a two-hour sermon. So allow me to catch you up just by summarizing. The whole Bible, the unified story of the Bible, starts taking shape when God calls a family out of relative obscurity and chooses them to be the people group through whom God is going to bless 
the whole world. Every people group of the world. And that family is Abraham's family. And the story of Abraham's family is so important that it runs throughout the entire Bible. And in this passage we just read, there are two main characters, Esau and Jacob. They are the twin sons of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. Now, before I tell you more of the story, it's important to note a central piece of cultural content. It's called the birthright. This is something in uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures and in many cultures today. The firstborn son has the most privilege and the most honor in the family. They are given what's called the birthright. And this is the inheritance of the family, the legacy of the family, the land, the cattle, the wealth, leadership, all that. And Esau, by virtue of being born slightly ahead of Jacob, by like minutes or whatever, you know, he gets the birthright. So the story goes that Jacob actually was born grasping the heel of his brother Esau. So his name means something like heel grabber or, you know, loosely translated like deceiver. And there's also another important piece of context for their relationship, and that's that when they were in their mother's womb, Rebecca, they were wrestling. They were feisty twins in the womb. And she prayed to the Lord, what's going on inside my womb? And this word came to her. It said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So, even before they're born, conflict has been pronounced over their relationship. And this served as a, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in their lives as they grew up. Esau and Jacob became polar opposites. Esau was a hot-blooded hunter. He was hairy and impulsive. He preferred the outdoors, and he was favored by his father, Isaac. Jacob, on the other hand, was a cool-headed, was cool-headed and smooth-skinned. That's what it says. He was a bit conniving, preferred the indoors, and cooked with his mother, Rebecca, who favored him the most. So naturally, these two twins' personalities clashed. And in one scene of their lives, we see how this clashing of personality led to conflict and uh, hurt. Esau was fresh from an exhausting hunt, and he demanded that his brother Jacob give him some stew. I guess he'd been cooking, he smelled the stew, he was very hungry, demanded some stew. So what did, so what did uh, Jacob do? He seized on this opportunity to deceive his brother, and he said, I will give you some stew in exchange for your birthright. And so what did Esau do? He agrees. The Bible says, so Esau despised his birthright. He treated his birthright like it was worthless. Then in another scene of their lives, their father Isaac is on his deathbed, and he asks his favored son Esau to go and kill a choice animal and make him a final meal. He promises that if Esau will do this, he will give him a blessing. Now a blessing in ancient Near Eastern culture was a big deal. It wasn't like a new car or a new house. It wasn't like that prosperity stuff. It was honor bestowed upon a person on behalf of God, and it was, it was not to be taken lightly. So this blessing was a big deal. Now Rebecca, Isaac's wife, favored Jacob, and, he over, and she overheard this plan, 
or this, uh, this deal, and so she made a plan. So together with Jacob, they conspired to trick Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. To do this, they had to convince Isaac that uh, Jacob was Esau. And remember, Esau was hairy. So they had to use goat skin on the arms. You remember this from Sunday school? Some of you do. Okay. So then Esau returns and he finds out that he's, the birthright or the blessing has been stolen from him. So he's irate. And the sibling rivalry reaches its apex. Esau vows that when he's finished mourning his father, he will kill his brother Jacob. And Jacob, hearing this, flees and that's the backdrop of our text that we just heard. So, so families are a bit complicated, aren't they? <laughs> Especially families in the Bible. Uh, even those of us who come from relatively stable, relatively complete families, we still have conflict. We still have complicated relationships. There's still relational pain that is a cause in our relationships. And so, and then there's the added complexity. A lot of us don't have those stable, whole families. So you have missing parents, you have divorce, blended families, so many other fa uh, factors. So all of this means that we have to wrestle with what does it mean to, to heal those divides? What does it mean to bridge them? By the time we get to our text from this earlier, from earlier, there's been a lot of conflict between these two. And if you've been reading the book of Genesis up until this point, as soon as you start hearing about conflict between these two brothers, you're going to immediately think about an earlier story about conflict between two brothers. And that story ended with murder. And so how do Esau and Jacob break the cycle? How do they mend the divide? How do they heal this this deep wound in their relationship? And the answer is, surprisingly enough, maybe, an apology. An apology is a powerful way that we can make ourselves vulnerable to one another, to offer our, one another a gift, a sacrifice, and to be peacemakers. So the idea for this sermon, in the middle of this Relationship Dynamics series, came to me when I was reading a book called Fire by Night. Fire by Night is by a Mennonite pastor named Melissa Fleur Bixler. And I was reading the fourth chapter called God of Memory, where she talks about Esau and Jacob. And at the same time I was reading that chapter, I turned on the radio and NPR had a brilliant segment on apologies. An entire like 50 minute segment. And it was, it was wonderful. So I said, all right, I think we need to learn how to say I'm sorry. Thinking about conflict and reconciliation in the relationship of Esau and Jacob inspires us to think about conflict and, re and reconciliation in our own relationships. So in the remainder of this time, I'm going to get really practical. This is the part where you're probably going to have to take notes. I'm going to lay out the essential components of a good apology. And I've tried to summarize them as best I can, but there's probably more to it. But I've, you know, I've, I've simplified it as best I can. The first aspect of a good apology comes from the chapter before the chapter we read, chapter 32. In chapter 32, it's all about Jacob's preparation for his apology. Jacob has to prepare his own heart to apologize to his brother. It begins with prayer. 
And it begins with his preparation of a gift for his brother. There is some pre-apology work that we have to do before we can make a good apology. We have to prepare our own hearts. So the first part of a good apology is sincerity. It doesn't matter if, uh, well, not, not doesn't matter. It does neither, that's what I meant to say, it does neither you nor the person you're apologizing to any good if you offer an insincere apology. It does no one any good. So the first thing we have to do is we have to get with Jesus. We have to get with Jesus. We have to go back to the source of our security. At bottom, we are people who have been transformed by the grace of God through Jesus. So when we are challenged to obey his command, to love others as we have been loved, to be peacemakers, to put others' interests before ourselves, we've got to go directly to Jesus to get that power. For me, when I'm feeling particularly prickly and I know the Holy Spirit is nudging me to apologize, I need to be reminded of just how far God has brought me. I have to be reminded of who I was when God rescued me. I have to be reminded that I am a product of God's grace. That were it not for God coming into my life and changing my heart, likely, likely story, I wouldn't be here today. So the Holy Spirit reminds me at the end of the day that I'm a person that has been rescued by God. This gives me the humility and the vulnerability to apologize. Dr. Michelle Clifton Soderstrom is the, basically the preeminent ethicist in the ECC. And she recently posted these thoughts on Facebook, and when I read them, I thought about this message. She said, divesting oneself of self-interest predicates obedience. That's, like a, that's, like a, that's a meaty sentence. Divesting oneself of self-interest predicates obedience. Acting in the interest of others is the only pathway to discipleship. I think this is spot on. In order for us to access that place of sincerity that we need to get to, we have to look to the life of Jesus and how it's intersected with our own lives. Jesus' life gives us a way out of conflict and into healing. And this means, number two, we have to be ready to change. One of the main problems with our apologies is that we just want to get past them. We just want to offer them and then get back to the way things were. But if we don't change the way things were before that, that created the conflict in the first place are just going to create more conflict. Nothing's going to change. So we will also have to reckon with our need to change. Now, here's where I think what I said last week is important. If we have a developmental model of our discipleship as Christians, that we will, we will not see the need for change as a threat to who we are. We will see it as a positive step of growth. If we view ourselves as having arrived at the finish line of faith, then we will resist change. We'll say, what is there to change? I've, I've arrived. But if we view ourselves as in a process of growth into maturity, and that process lasting our entire lives, then change is a natural part of that process. We will invite change. We will want to change. 
Our pre-apology work also includes prioritizing the relationship. This is important because a lot of us, we tend to think about apologies in a winning-losing dichotomy. If I apologize, I lose. But instead, a different framework for our apology is we are putting the relationship first. We are putting the relationship ahead of our own egos. And setting aside our ego is not only a Christ-like act, it's a courageous act. Oshita and I had a mentor couple in New Orleans named Kevin and Sandy Brown. And they helped us a lot when we were newly married. Uh, the husband, Kevin, was a psychotherapist, gave us a lot of great free counseling. And I remember him saying once that he and his wife had stopped competing to see who could hold, the, hold grudges the longest, who could give each other the, the you know, silent treatment or the cold shoulder the longest, and they had started competing to see who could apologize first. That always stuck with me, like, wow, I want to get there someday. That's my goal. They realized that their relationship was more important than their individual egos. Before we get, even get to the apology, we've got to do some pre-apology work. We've got to be sincere. We've got to be ready to change. We've got to prioritize the relationship. You know, I just realized that I skipped over a, an important disclaimer. Let me, let me make an important disclaimer here. I am not talking about apologies today because I am so good at them. Quite the opposite. I am preaching to myself today. This was my homework so that I could apologize better. Just so you know. I, I skipped over that whole, whole disclaimer earlier. Alright, so now on to the apology. Genesis chapter 33 is all about Jacob's apology to Esau. And most of the chapter is a bit of an ancient Near Eastern negotiation of a gift. We could call this gift a peace offering. A good apology is like Jacob's peace offering. It's a good gift when it's offered in humility and vulnerability, the way that Jacob's was. The first and most important part of a good apology is owning your wrongdoing. This is probably where most of us get tripped up. In apologies, we often try to find a way to make it not entirely our fault, right? It's like partially our fault. For example, I thought of this recently. In the early 90s, Judge Clarence Thomas was nominated to the Supreme Court. And a young lawyer named Anita Hill accused him of sexual harassment. And there were televised public hearings about this. And she composed herself with the utmost of professionalism and courage. However, the senators who were questioning her, they treated her with a lot of disrespect. And a very young Democratic senator, or younger, I should say, younger Democratic senator, Joe Biden, was the chair of that committee at the time. And he not only allowed her to be disrespected by some of the other committee members, but he actually treated her with some disrespect himself. Recently, I read that Joe Biden reached out to Anita Hill shortly before he announced his presidential uh, campaign for the 2020 election. He wanted to clear the air. He wanted to, you know, patch things up with Anita Hill in light of recent allegations of inappropriate touching of women himself. But 
I read that his apology was a non-apology apology. Anybody ever heard of a non-apology apology? For those of you who aren't familiar, it's one in which the apologizer defends themselves or blames the victim or deflects blame away from themselves. In Biden's case, I read that he said, I'm sorry you were mistreated. Is that an apology? He stopped short of saying, I'm sorry I mistreated you. He did not own his wrongdoing. One of the main reasons why we often are reluctant to own our wrongdoing is because we feel shame. This was one of the best parts of that NPR segment, if you go back and listen to it. One of the best parts of that seg segment was from Dr. Um, Hallward. She made an important distinction between what we've done and who we are. Or I'll, I'll rephrase it this way, wrongdoing versus wrong being. She said that shame is the feeling that we, who we are is wrong. Some essential part of who we are is wrong. And this reminds me of that scene that you might remember from the first uh, How to Train Your Dragon movie. Hiccup is the son of the chief, and he knows that one day he will become chief, but he feels very inadequate, like he's not going to be a good chief. And at one point, his father says, you just need to change this. And, and Hiccup says, you just motioned to all of me. That's kind of how we feel when we feel shame. Um, what we must own in our apologies is our wrongdoing, not our wrong being. That's important. You are not the worst things you've ever done. Uh, you, uh, one mistake in your life, or even a series of mistakes in your life, does not define you. That is why we can take ownership of wrong behavior without feeling shame. Because remember, at bottom... We are people rescued by God's grace. And we are in a process of developing into maturity. So, courageously own your wrongdoing. This also means we can't blame the other person in the apology. That's self-defeating. The quickest way to short-circuit an apology is to begin to blame the person you're supposed to be apologizing to. One helpful technique that my wife and I learned in like, pre-marital counseling, or maybe it was just post-marital counseling, we learned to use I statements. Everybody know this? I feel this way, not you made me feel this way. Right? I statements. That's a really important way to avoid blaming. And if you've got... Um, and then here's, the, here's another key. We've got to work really, really hard at not putting a but in our apology. That is key. I'm really sorry, but I was busy. Right? How many times have we said that? I was, I'm really sorry, but you didn't tell me. So it's your fault. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but there's all these things that got in the way. Right? We always have an excuse of trying to justify ourselves. Just own your wrongdoing and don't hedge it with a, re with a reason. This also is where intent comes in. This is really important too. Oftentimes in non-apology apologies, a lack of intent is the justification. Someone will say, I'm sorry, but I didn't intend to hurt you. But intent is not the important part of an apology. The important part of an apology is impact. Impact. Whether we meant to or not, we can hurt people. 
Just saying that we didn't intend to doesn't make the hurt go away. The impact remains. This reminds me of a famous video by one of my favorite people in the entire world. One of my favorite people in the entire world is Jay Smooth. Jay Smooth is like one of the longest running DJs in New York. He had a hip hop show on the radio for like, I don't know, 20 years or 25 years. But you can Google Jay Smooth racism video and find this video that's been viewed over, uh, over uh, 1.2 million times. And basically what he says in the video is, when you're dealing with someone on the internet who makes racist remarks, the kind of conversation you want to have is a what they said conversation, not a who they are conversation. Because the conversation of you are a racist is easy to defend. You don't know me. You can't see into my heart, right? How many times have you heard that? But a, but a what you said is racist conversation is a really applicable conversation. And that's the conversation you want to have. So watch that video. It's perfect. But he has this great line. This is, this is the line. This is kind of like the punchline of the video. When somebody picks my pocket, I'm not going to be chasing them down to figure out whether they, whether they feel like a thief deep down in their heart. I'm going to be chasing them down so I can get my wallet back. It's the impact of the wrongdoing that matters, that's important, not the intent. So a good apology doesn't shift blame. It doesn't make excuses or justifications. A good apology is about the impact of the wrongdoing, not the intent. And owning our wrongdoing doesn't mean that our behavior defines us. A good apology is not made out of shame. We are not the worst things we've ever done, but a good apology takes ownership of the hurt that we have caused. All right, finally, there are some post-apology things we have to do. One of the most important parts of Genesis chapter 33 is Jacob's offering of restitution or reparations. He stole Esau's birthright and amassed great wealth from it. To make up for what Esau suffered, Jacob offered to make up for what he had lost. This is an important part of post-apology. The first part of a good apology, a good post-apology is how are you going to change moving forward? This goes directly back to the pre-apology work. We know that if something doesn't change in our relationship, we are likely to continue having the same conflict all over again. So we take ownership of our part, our part, of the necessary change going forward. This is a good time to ask the person, how can I make it up to you? And let them decide those terms. This demonstrates that you are truly willing to change. And of course, follow through on what you agree upon. That's going to be the first test of your sincerity and integrity. Some voices on apologies say that we should not ask for forgiveness. I disagree with that. I think, I think we should ask for forgiveness. But what I think is important in the asking of forgiveness is that you never rush the other person to forgive. Forgiveness is a process. It's not an instant, instantaneous thing. It's important that we don't rush reconciliation either. There may need to be some separation time in order to build trust again. And that's a really important thing. So, one of my favorite verses from this passage is the one where Jacob says, For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. I think this gives language to something that we all want to experience. We want to experience that reconciliation, that acceptance, that, that 
bond being rebuilt. When we offer a sincere apology and it's received, there is a way in which God is present in that experience in a profound way. God is the peace. Well, at least Jesus is the peace in the midst of our conflict. I like the way that Melissa Flora Bixler's put it in her book. She said, all the time, God is there in the ruins, showing these brothers that there is enough. Enough blessing for all, enough love for all, enough of everything. It isn't simply that God disrupts social formulas and lines of inheritance. God does it in such a way as to work towards restoration. And that's what it's all about. In the end, God is in the business of restoration. God is using broken people like us, who are part of broken systems in the world, to demonstrate the healing power of God's spirit. So there you have it. How to say I'm sorry. I truly hope that in the days to come, I'm going to be reminded of these points. When there's conflict in, with me and Oshida, when there's conflict with me and someone else, I hope that I'm reminded of these and I hope that you're reminded. And I hope that we become models of reconciliation. Pray with me. God, I thank you for your spirit because your spirit gives us what we don't have. Oftentimes we lack the courage to step out in vulnerability and to apologize or to do that hard work of seeking sincerity, of being willing to change. I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be with us when we, when we encounter conflict in our relationships, when we are hurt by someone, or when we hurt someone else. I pray that your spirit would remind us, call to memory the story of Esau and Jacob and how they broke the cycle through vulnerability, through peace offering, through apology. And I pray that we would be a people formed by your spirit, formed by your word, and that we would be models. We would model what it means to be people who are reconcilers. The ministry of reconciliation. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.